it's easy to look at the news in the world today and feel some despair. And if you are working on the issue, well, it may get better or it may not, but you're going to feel better because you are actualizing your compassion. And whenever you can't actualize your compassion, people will get despondent, depressed, angry. And if you're mobilizing your compassion, you'll feel healthier and you'll feel mentally better. Don't get lost in thinking, oh, I haven't stopped the horrible thing from happening. Even small efforts, you won't necessarily see the results of them for a long period of time. everyone, Sarah Gulabdara here with Dipkal Talk podcast. I'll be today's host. And my guest today is my friend Yeshua. So Yeshua Moser Pongsuan. Yeshua is a human rights and disarmament activist, author, lecturer, and nonviolence trainer and educator. He has organized or participated in people's power initiatives from the local to the national level on four continents and in a score of countries. Articles authored by Yeshua on human rights and nonviolent struggles have appeared in several European, Pacific, and Asian language journals. From 1992 to 2005, Yeshua was the regional representative for nonviolence international in Southeast Asia and is the founder of the Thailand Campaign to Ban Landmines. Through that regional office, he focused on building the capacity in human rights organizations to think strategically about waging their struggle by nonviolent means and co-authored two reports analyzing widely used methods of nonviolent struggle. Yeshua has developed and led training programs in nonviolent third-party intervention, as well as human rights monitoring for activists and workers entering areas of social or armed conflict. He is the co-author of Nonviolent Intervention Across Borders, which is regarded as both groundbreaking and authoritative. He currently serves on the board of the AJ Mus International Nonviolence Trainers Fund. And since 2005, Yeshua has been a research coordinator and editor of the annual reports of the International Campaign to Ban Landmine and Cluster Munition Coalition, which I read and am a big fan of. So welcome, Yeshua. You have quite an extensive resume and have contributed so much to the humanitarian and disarmament efforts. Would you like to elaborate on any of your experiences? And can you also talk about what inspired you to get involved and what keeps you motivated to continue to do this work today? I was living in Thailand and doing some work in the Cambodian refugee camps in the early 90s. And you couldn't be there without being exposed to landmine victims. Several people in the camps had said to me at that time, you'll always be able to recognize a person of Khmer descent in the future because they will be the people with one leg. And in 92, when five civil society organizations founded the international campaign to ban landmines, I thought, this is a campaign that's going to make a huge difference in the world. It's difficult to remember back to that time, but I had discussions with government representatives and military representatives 
who said, your campaign is never, ever going to get anywhere. And today, it is really one of the success stories of our time. 80 countries have joined this convention that bans anti-personnel landmines comprehensively. And it was founded on humanitarian principles and opened the activity which we now call humanitarian disarmament. Because prior to this, most disarmament treaties were agreements between governments based on state interest issues. And we came along and said, "Uh uh-uh, we want to do disarmament as though people mattered. Mm -hmm. And we put that front and center. And if you see the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to the international campaign to ban landmines. It's a Cambodian double amputee, uh, Tun Chanaret, who is in his wheelchair on stage holding up the medal. And it was this putting people forward, putting people first, that has led to the success of our movement and subsequent conventions on cluster munitions and now the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Wow, you know, it's so much. And what you said about how people recognize Cambodians is just chilling, right? And it's um, it's come so far, you know, being part of the U.S. campaign side. I, of course, know the history of ICBL-CMC and draw so much inspiration from it. And I know it took a lot of folks to get to uh, where we are today. And yet, you know, the campaign still continues to inspire so many So thank you for sharing that. So you recently published an article in our blog and our newsletter titled The Return of Cluster Munitions to Southeast Asia. In this piece, you broke the news that Myanmar Air Force used cluster munitions on a village near the border of Thailand. This is devastating news as it documents a new use of cluster munitions in Southeast Asia in nearly five decades. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with Myanmar, Burma, Can you please just share like a brief overview of the conflict and talk about the particular incidents from your article? It's difficult to uh, encapsulate the conflict in Myanmar in just a few sentences, but uh, we can say that no entity has ever been in control of the landmass we refer to as Burma since it was decolonized from British colonial rule. There are a large number of ethnic groups in it, and there has been difficulties with the agreements on governance of the place. And most recently, there was a military coup in February of 2021. And that has led to a huge upswing in violence between the military authorities and several ethnic groups in the country, all of which have armed wings. And so there is a widespread civil war throughout the country at this particular point in time. You know, I understand that this is actually the first time that any Asian country has been known to produce cluster munitions. Can you kind of Unpack that a little bit. Share with our audience why why this is such a big deal and why is cluster munitions so controversial? Why is it that there's even a campaign to ban it? And why have so many countries jumped on and, and just put their foot down and said, we must ban this type of weapon? Cluster munitions have the same objection that we have to anti-personnel landmines. Anti-personnel landmines are not a targeted weapon. Once the combatant lays it on the ground, it is going to kill or injure the next person who stumbles along it. That may be the enemy combatant. It may be your own side. It may be anyone in the civil community, and it may be an animal that will be injured or killed by it. And therefore, it is indiscriminate. 
by its nature. You cannot target it. It will pick its own target by chance. International humanitarian law requires that armed forces discriminate between military uh, targets and civilian population. They are not allowed to target civilian population to do so as a war crime. And by our opinion, it's a violation of international humanitarian law to use a landmine or cluster munitions, but we needed separate conventions on them just to make that point very, very clear, unambiguously clear. Cluster munitions can be delivered from the air, be rocket fired, uh, artillery fired, and they release a cloud of smaller explosive munitions, which may or may not explode on impact. When they don't explode on impact, they remain wherever they landed as lethal hazard, and people will stumble across them. You can't say that's a military target. That is indiscriminate, and therefore use of them is in our opinion, a war crime. You know, in our own work here at Legacies, of course, our supporters will definitely be familiar with the roughly 80 million cluster munitions that's laying in Laos, right? And more in Cambodia, Vietnam as well. I think one of the main, main thing that we're seeing in Southeast Asia is the fact that the dud rate or the failure rate is anywhere between like 10 to 30% in, in various parts of the region. And I think that is one of the biggest reasons why Legacies has chosen to really join the campaign and ensure that our country, the United States of America, exceed to the convention. We know that there's new contaminations in Myanmar, Burma. Uh, where else are we seeing cluster munitions used like right now? And can you also elaborate on some of the longer term impacts that it will have on these countries that are experiencing new contaminations due to cluster munitions? Well, before we go on to that, and we may have, I may have to have you repeat the question. I didn't answer the second part of your question, which was on the production by Myanmar and why is that a big deal? There was massive contamination due to the Indochina war, primarily from cluster munitions that were manufactured by countries outside of Southeast Asia who introduced them into the conflict. The vast majority produced by the United States of America, but some also produced by Russia. Those were introduced into the region for the few countries in Southeast Asia who have not yet joined the Cluster Munition Convention, but whom we hope will in the near future, also have not produced the cluster munition. They've purchased them from outside. And so there's never been a domestically manufactured cluster munition in Southeast Asia. That makes this situation disturbing. I would say that it's a relatively primitive cluster munition, but that doesn't matter. It can kill a lot of people, even as a primitive one. I originally, as, as a research coordinator here, I was looking at remnants of this weapon, which we had seen for over a year, but we couldn't identify precisely how it was made and where it was made and, and what it was deploying. And it wasn't until one of the ethnic armed groups had sent me some pieces of it that it finally fell into place photographs of pieces of it. I see you <laughs> a little concerned yeah. there. Yeah, they, they sent me photographs of the pieces, and then I was able to actually identify how it was made. And uh, they have essentially repurposed a munition that they already made for their infantry and clustered them into a canister, which they dropped by air using yak, uh, Russian-made yak jets. 
and it has about 12 120 millimeter uh, mortar projectile cluster munitions inside of it. And they will kill or injure anyone in about a space of a football field when they land. It would be about that area that would be totally devastated if you're not behind something like a concrete wall. And those are rare in the jungle areas of Myanmar. Um, Most structures are bamboo walls providing no cover whatsoever. Wow. I mean, it's terrifying to, to hear this. And, you know, I just really fear for the civilian population. Uh, One thing that just came to my mind is these are domestically produced. What are the chances or the the risks, would you say, from just your perspective of Myanmar selling these in the region? Zero. Zero. Um, they're, They're way too primitive. Everybody else in the region has access to much better weaponry if they want it. It's not going to ever be exported. I guess we can count that as a small win, at least it's not going to be further dispersed out. So, you know, we know that from your article, you've documented several use in civilian populated area in multiple like states within Myanmar. How many accidents have been reported like from a civilian population? And what are some of the long-term impacts that, you know, the people of Myanmar will have to deal with? Because we only came out with our briefing paper on this a couple of months ago, we don't have a lot of data like that at this point. We can't even firmly state what were the casualties during its initial use because all of those attacks had multiple weapons used. There was cannon fire from the jets, there were ordinary bombs, and there were cluster bombs. It's hard to know which person who was killed or injured was from which weapon. The conflict is active and ongoing, which means that there's a difficulty getting accurate reporting on the ground and the types of information that we have on the effects of cluster munition in Cambodia and uh, Laos and Vietnam, that conflict happened a long time ago. We can count things today. There's mm-hmm. simply not the, the surveillance mechanisms in Myanmar today to be able to come up with that type of statistic. I mean, definitely understandable. Um, you know, it's just wishful thinking that you might have new documentations from the time that we published your article to now. And you know, while I think countries like Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, there's still some areas where, you know, we know that people are not reporting accidents and the numbers that we have are like the best possible data that we can pull based on the reporting, right? So I think we definitely still have a lot of work to do in order to really document and assist as many people as possible. So we are aware that there's some activities happening to address the anti-personal landmines and cluster munitions as it relates to their use in Myanmar, despite the tremendous challenges. Can you talk a little bit about that? What type of activism can happen in a country like Myanmar right now during a time of ongoing conflict, right? Uh, So that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, what are some of the activities and what more is needed to help activists succeed in trying to get these types of weapons that are internationally banned in so many countries already to take effect in Myanmar? Well, our main 
way to uh, deal with the use is by naming and shaming and engaging actors about the consequences of the use of the weapon. As a campaign, most of our work is focused on landmines because those are having one of the widest impacts on the people of Myanmar. We launched back in June a nationwide poster contest with prize money for uh, youths and adults to put together a piece of artwork uh, on the impact of landmines on their community. And uh, we're just getting set to judge the pieces that have come in on that and then provide the, the prize money and then make known those pieces of artwork that are showing that. And this will help build the stigma against use because whether a combatant is with one of the ethnic organizations or with the Myanmar military forces, they all come out of the domestic population. And so building and understanding and stigmatizing the use of this weapon widely in society is one of the ways to try and get the combatants to realize this is not okay. This is not something to be done. That's a slow process. It's going to take a long time, but there's no quick fixes for much of this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's really creative. Did you get like a ton of people submitting? A lot of people are afraid. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are afraid to touch the subject because of the widespread use um, of landmines by both the military and ethnic groups with armed wings. And some people would feel it's unpatriotic to do it. There's, there's a lot of work to do in that country. But we did get enough. And I've seen some of them already, very creative pieces. I'm looking forward to our final judgment on the pieces on Monday. Uh, and the awarding of the prize money to people. And then the displaying mm -hmm. will be creating social media and putting those up and uh, giving them as much visibility as possible. Of course. Where can we see it? Is What's what's the social media handle? Uh, Mind Free Myanmar. Mind Free Myanmar. Okay, we'll make sure to include that. Well, thanks for sharing that. In a way, like I think contests like this, we're twirling around with exhibit ourselves and having people interpret it in their own way. We find it like really therapeutic. I think we got some great feedback on that. We're coming up to our final questions and it's the toughest one, I think. <laughs> so what advice do you have for the next generation of human rights and disarmament activists? What's the best way to get started? What's the best way to stay motivated? And do you have any specific lessons you want to share with us? Uh, find people within your community, and community is whatever you define it as. Uh, for some people, that's a very small concept. For other people, that's a very large concept uh, who care about these issues. There are people in every community who care about these issues in some way. It might be rather oblique to what Legacies of War is doing, or it might be very close to it. And become engaged with that, those types of activities. It's easy to look at the news in the world today and feel some despair. And if you are working on the issue, well, it may get better or it may not, but you're going to feel better because you are actualizing your compassion. And whenever you can't actualize your compassion, people will get despondent, depressed, angry. And if you're mobilizing your compassion, you'll feel healthier and you'll feel mentally better. Don't get lost in thinking, oh, I haven't stopped the horrible thing from happening. Even small efforts, you 
won't necessarily see the results of them for a long period of time because I'm now ancient uh, in age. <laughs> I have the uh, advantage that people will come up to me and say, oh, something you did, you know, 20 years ago really influenced my life. And I can't even necessarily remember the incident, but that's wisdom. It's, it's a, uh, it's a great affirmation to me that it's super important to take action. And you'll sleep peacefully at night. I do, because I know if the world's not a better place for what I did, it's no worse off. Those are really good advice. Is there a time in, you know, just your incredible career from, you know, when you started till now that you just felt like this is just too hard? And what did you do? How did you just get yourself back up and, and get and stayed with it? I've never had that experience in almost 70 years. <laughs> I'm missing something. Then. I'm really missing something. <laughs> I think you just have this very calm aura that, you know, no matter what, you're just kind of like, I'm going to keep going. So I really admire that about you um, because I think, you know, in, in our space, sometimes we just get, you're right, you know, with everything that's happening all around the world, it's easy to just get angry, but it's hard to channel that anger into something productive um, versus just kind of, you know, stay angry and not know what to do because it just seems like nothing is really working to get what, you know, you're wanting. At least that's kind of my, my piece on some of the things that has been happening here with the U.S. campaign, but I like that, you know, what you said about just at least you're doing something about it. And if you work on this and you continue the work for a longer period of time, you're going to meet, and I guarantee this, some remarkable people who will just be so inspiring to you. And uh, that's a side benefit of, of working for positive social change and an end to violence in the world. You're going to gravitate towards these people, and those people will also gravitate towards you. Um, I would put in a shameless plug for a piece that I was just interviewed on, on the BBC's Living History, A Witness to History is what it's called. They're short vignettes. I was surprised that they contacted me about a peace walk I did in Cambodia in 1992. That was just broadcast a few weeks ago. I, I think you would very much enjoy it. I'm looking well, it up right after this. I can't wait to see it. Well... Thank you so uh, much. Sarah, you're forgetting something. Um, what? what am I forgetting? You skipped over the question on uh, cluster munitions being used in other parts of the world because I got you off your track and um, See, took you back. This to is, um, you know, this is what happened when we don't have our typical host. She's more on top of this than me. <laughs> and you're just too engaging that I forget that you didn't answer my question. You'll be good for Meet the Press. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, well, one of the successes of our campaign is we have built a huge stigma around the use of these weapons, and so they aren't used very much. But the place that almost everybody has heard of their use in recent times is Russia and the Ukraine, uh, where they've been used by both sides. They have caused civilian victim by both sides, and they have contaminated in a very large area. And so... That has probably been the most extensive use of cluster munitions anywhere in the world 
since the Convention on Cluster Munitions came into existence. So it's an area that we have uh, focused a lot of attention on. We condemn both sides for, for using the cluster munition. And outside of that, the only use uh, is the Syrian regime used some in the area around Idlib. Um, it was a rocket-fired cluster munition, and then the use in Myanmar. Both of them disturbing, but nowhere near the scale of the use in uh, Russia and the Ukraine. And outside of that, there is no other use of it. Since our convention came into existence, on cluster munitions. No state that's a party to that convention, which is well over half the world's governments, has ever been accused of violating it. And 99% of their stockpiles now are completely destroyed. When a nation joins that convention, they can't sell, they can't give away those old cluster munitions, they have to destroy them. Mm -hmm. And that is millions upon millions of explosive submunitions that will never ever be used anywhere in the world, uh, will never kill or injure anyone or any animal. I will clap for that as well as the environments, right? So, you know, some some folks might be listening to this and think to themselves that, okay, so the war uh, in Ukraine, Putin's aggression on Ukraine, it's Ukraine's right to use these weapons because it's on their territory, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically about cluster munitions. Our primary objection is that they are indiscriminate and that makes their use illegal under existing international humanitarian law to use them simply as a war crime, whether you're using them on your own population, as it were, your own territory, or you're using them on the territory of another state. Such use is extremely short-sighted. You're going to have to reside in your country in the future. And these things have a very long tail. They've got a very long lifespan to them. And you're committing yourself to years, if not decades, in Ukraine's case of clearance. Uh, look how long they've been in the ground in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam. We're talking 50 years on. I visited a young woman in a hospital in Laos. She had been injured by a U.S. dropped cluster submunition because she was helping her father on his farm hoe the hillside so that they could plant some crops for their subsistence living. That cluster submunition was dropped 20 years before she was born. It was somebody else's war that she was a casualty of. Mm -hmm. So they may have their military objective that they think, today, I want to take out that gun and I'm going to send a cluster munition over there. Mm -hmm. The casualties will occur down the road and they will be civilian. Yeah. So there's this time displacement, um, and the balance does not work out. The balance mm -hmm. does not work out for Ukraine. Yeah, no, I, I think you brought up a really good point, and I hope the leaders really reconsider the long-term impact that it will have on their own civilians, right? That's a... More conditions, short-term thinking. It's a yeah. zero-sum game. Uh, you win or you lose. This is the problem with violent methods. I think you share some really great advice to folks who are currently doing this work, who wants to get more involved. What gives you hope 
despite all the challenges ahead for our sector. The successes that we've had over the years, like I said, the landmine ban has been the greatest success of our generation. The vast majority of governments have joined it. The amount of land that is cleared and turned over to safe and productive human use in rural and urban areas increases every year. In all of the countries that have joined it, there's a continual drop in any new casualties, and there's better assistance for those who've survived. It really is the success story of our time, and it shows that when we want to do something, we can do it, mm-hmm. whatever the problem is. I mean, when we started this, everybody said, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to fail. Who cares about it? And today, because we are a success story, it's kind of like written off like, yeah, okay, we all knew that. No. Nobody knew the grind, the hard work that paid the way, except for campaigners, right? Especially the ones that started in the early days. Um, So, you know, I draw so much inspiration um, from the success of ICBL. You know, I think it's, it it is tremendous progress and we should really be very thankful for the amount of lives that, you know, I know the campaign has saved and and I hope we'll continue this work and make further impact. So Yeshua, pleasure speaking to you as always. Uh, Thank you so much for dropping by Dipcult Talk. And yeah, until next time, we'll see you all soon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for tuning into Thipcot Talk and joining the Sticky Rice Squad. Please do not forget us and remember to follow us on all platforms where you can find your favorite podcasts, including this one, of course. This year, Legacies of War is going on tour and we'd love to see you on the road. To see where we're going next, make sure to follow us at www.legaciesofwar.org. If there's a special story or someone that you think that we should feature on the Legacies of War Dipcow Talk podcast, message us and let us know. See you all very soon. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode. Thank you very much. Or as they say in Lao, Kop Jai